This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a very special guest. It's Star Trek novelist Greg Cox. Hi Greg, how are you? Very good, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you on the podcast. And the reason we wanted to have you on, it was actually Tony's idea to uh, to get you on, was to talk about some books that you wrote um, quite a few years ago now, I, I realised. I mean, I sort of had these on my shelf, you know, waiting to get around to them uh, for a while. But these are the books about um, the eugenics wars, because um, we were kind of interested in looking at the way that uh, Star Trek has approached this subject of genetic engineering, genetic modification, and particularly the kind of background of the eugenics wars. And Tony was saying, if we're going to do that, you've got to get Greg Cox on because he's the guy who literally wrote the book on that subject. Um, I was wondering, first of all, you could talk to me a little bit about how those books um, came about. Because uh, I know you did a, a, another book as well later, which I haven't got to yet, about Khan, uh, sort of Khan in exile, effectively. But these books, which kind of tackle this question of the eugenics wars, and really quite cleverly, I think, managed to sort of reconcile uh, one of the problems that happens with Star Trek occasionally, where something that is sort of posited in the future uh, suddenly catches up with the present. So you've got, you know, in the 1960s, um, this fictitious war taking place 30 years hence. And then 30 years hence, you know, not only are we not living through it in the real world, but on Star Trek Voyager, they've got an episode set in the 1990s, uh, which very much seems to be in our world. And you sort of somehow managed to square that circle, I think, with these books. Well, in fact, when we... You know, we're talking about the, doing these books with my editor at the time. The Star Trek editor was John Ordover. We realized there were two different approaches you can take to doing the eugenics, the fearsome eugenics wars of the 1990s. Um, as we were writing these books in the 1990s, one was simply to throw real history out the window. Aside, we're, we're in some sort of alternate Star Trek universe and do a amazing kick-ass apocalyptic eugenics wars thing that didn't actually happen. Or we could try to do something somebody sneakier and more fun, we thought, which was to try to somehow reconcile the actual history we were living in of the 1990s with what had been established about the fearsome eugenics wars back in the day. So we kind of took the whole, can we somehow, it was like a giant crossword puzzle of trying to take real history, Star Trek 
history and make them somehow, you know, meet them together here, you know. And, and you do an amazing job of it. I mean, you managed to get so much into those books. I, I think, I mean, for me as someone who sort of grew up in the 90s, there's also an element of kind of, um, not quite nostalgia exactly, but there is this, and, and you know, you go, you go back earlier. I mean, the first of the books starts in the 70s, really. And it kind of, they managed to touch on uh, a lot of real world history one way or another in a way that I think is quite clever. And you use the fact that you've got, um, you, you know, the Gary Seven uh, character and Roberta Lincoln as well, uh, sort of picking up that strand as a way of sort of having these agents on earth who are there, which is a brilliant move, I think. And also bringing in all these other characters. I think I feel like you must have got in pretty much every 20th century Star Trek character one way or another. You kind of work them into those books somehow. So it, it does feel like it must have been a real feat kind of plotting them out and working out, you know, how do all the pieces fit together? How do you kind of um, make this fit? Because it is much more complicated and much more sprawling than a typical Star Trek novel, I guess, that takes place within one sort of one adventure that might be, you know, one episode or one movie or whatever. Uh, this is is something where you are really telling a, a period of, I mean, I, I suppose the second book is focused more in that period in the 90s, but the first one is, is covering, you know, the years leading up to that as well. Oh, yeah, I've got them running just people who have not read the book. It starts, Khan starts out as a small child, the product mm. of a genetic engineering project in India. And as the years go on, we've got him at, you know, Reagan, running into Reagan and Gorbachev at a submarine in Reykjavik. I've got the Bhopal disaster. I've got various, I had an, at the time an entire shelf of books on Indian history that I was mm-hmm. consulting. I remember I went nuts one entire day trying to figure out what the Indira Gandhi International Airport was called before it was named after <laughs> Indira Gandhi. I was mm-hmm. calling, looking at travel sites because obviously it wasn't called that before her. I was trying to get the real history as accurate as I can. And as you mentioned, being a hardcore Star Trek trivia enthusiast, I was trying to bring in as many, even if only as cameos, as many characters as a step that we've seen from the 20th century, you know, like those cryogenically frozen people from the neutral zone on TNG. I, I think the book Chicago Mobs of the 1990s, you know, sorry, Chicago Mobs of the 1920s, which was supposed to have been published in the 1990s, and of course, mm-hmm. later caused the whole gangster planet to happen. Makes a cameo appearance. I think Roberta clobbers somebody over the head with it at some point. Yeah, yeah. Five <laughs> books for, you know, yeah. There was, a, and, I, and actually, I gotta give credit to again my editor John Ordover. We were having too much fun. He was calling me up and he was suggesting, "Oh, we gotta work this in." And if you look close enough, there's all sorts of vague allusions to not just Star Trek but other stuff from in the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. Look carefully, the bionic woman is in there. Look carefully, there's a reference to the Wicker Man, uh, to the Stepford Wives. We were just, you know, Johnny Quest. We were trying to sort of, you know, lots and lots of Easter eggs. And I, I, I remember John would call me up excitedly in the morning because he figured out how to work in a Johnny Quest Easter egg into the book. Mm-hmm. And- we would go for it. Well, the other thing, the other element uh, that, that really struck me along those lines, actually, is, is a more sort of general thing, not so much an Easter egg, but I guess because you've got Gary Seven, you've got this sort of association. I, I assume it must have been deliberate, the fact he was Gary Seven and, you know, you have 007 and it's kind of, there's sort of James Bond element. And it really struck me in the novels that you construct Khan as a kind of Bond villain. And e- even in the first novel, even when Khan's a child, you know, there's this sense of this kind of underground facility and it, fe- it all feels very much like it's come out of a kind of classic uh, James Bond story. And I sort of thought that was interesting because I'd never, 
I don't know why I'd never really sort of made that connection with the Khan character. I, I suppose there are different ways of seeing him. You, you can see him as a kind of Bond villain, and he is in that he's very charismatic and kind of, you know, megalomaniacal and, and kind of slightly mad. He, he is the kind of larger than life sort of Bond villain type. But he's also like a kind of, I suppose he's a supervillain because he's got his kind of super strength. And by the time certainly you get to something like Star Trek Into Darkness with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Khan, that film always feels to me very much like a superhero movie. Um, but, but even in, you, you know, in all the, the manifestations of the, the augment storylines, whether it's in, uh, you know, the original series or Enterprise or whatever, you do have this sense that these characters are not only, you know, so much of it is about this kind of increased intellect, but also increased physical strength, uh, increased, you know, agility, quickness, um, and so on. There is that kind of sense of, it, it does feel like it's an area where Star Trek can kind of move from, the science fiction realm into these sort of slightly other generic uh, sandboxes to play in one way or another. Well, you're absolutely on target there, especially with the Gary Seven and Roberta stuff. But yeah, exactly. Gary Seven comes out of not just James Bond, but that whole 1960s hip sci-fi, spy-fi era, the Avengers, the man from uncle, our man Flint, etc., Gary Seven is very much, you know, coming out. He's got his, you know, handy gadgets, the sidekicks. And in fact, I confess, when I was writing the Gary Seven segments in those books, I was just usually listening to, for inspiration, Bond soundtracks, the (laughs) R-Man Flint soundtracks, the Avengers soundtracks. And by Avengers, I mean Steed and Emma, not Captain America the Hulk, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I think Gary Seven always, which again was a TV pilot from the 1960s, basically, was part of that whole super spies were hot, the Avengers, the man from Uncle Bond, and all his mini Matt Helm and all his mini imitators. So yeah, I was deliberately going for kind of a James Bond vibe, the secret underground headquarters, etc. That's not coincidence. And that was absolutely deliberate. And it's great, I suppose. I mean, another way of looking at this story, because it does take us through so much time with those characters. And I know you've written about those characters in other uh, Star Trek time books as well but i suppose insofar as that episode was really a kind of backdoor pilot for a show that never came to be because i suppose because we got star trek back instead you know which obviously we're all very thankful for um i i sort of love the idea of sort of seeing where those characters uh were going because so much of it is not i mean you've got this kind of framing narrative about kirk and and, and spock and mccoy on the enterprise and this kind of contemporary you know, for them, uh, storyline about a, a colony of people who are uh, involved in genetic engineering and the kind of rights and wrongs of that. But other than that, it is really, um, you know, it is a, a Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln adventure in a sense, um, as much as, you know, and obviously Khan is the kind of the, the thread running through that's going to kind of carry forward, I guess, um, you know, going into the Wrath of Khan, obviously. But I mean, it, it, it's kind of, it is almost an episode or a, a series or a couple of series of that TV show that we never got to see. In fact, I'll tell you a true story how those books happened, the Eugenics of Wars. Those happened, honestly, by accident. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, I had previously written a Return of Gary Seven novel. Mm. And at the end of that novel, I had just as a, again, an Easter egg, as a throwaway little line, mentioned there was some of Spock mentions well you know Gary Seven and Roberta must return to their own time because my historical research indicates that they are instrumental in the downfall of Khan Nguyen Singh Mm -hmm. and I swear to God when I wrote that little (laughs) tag at the end of that book 
I just thought it was a cute little punchline to the book, you know. An in-joke. Yeah, it, it was an in-joke. It was, oh, that made sense because they were contemporaries. Oh, that's a nice mm-hmm. way. We have to return them to their own time because they have to stop con. That's neat. Mm-hmm. But what then, happened then is that my editor, John Ordover, called me up and said, Greg, that's a great idea. Do you want to write those books? Mm-hmm. I, I swear to God, I was not deliberately setting that up for sequels. But John read that sentence, you know, which was like a throwaway bit at the end of the, first, of the of the Gary Seven book and said, Gary Seven versus Khan, well, Greg, you, you, you've got to write that book. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. And that started us on, you know, three books later, I'd written three books about Khan. Well, one of the things, I, I mean, I mentioned, you, you know, as someone who certainly lived through uh, some of those, I've certainly lived, lived through the 1990s. I mean, my, my memories of that period are, are, you know, clearer than the sort of early, some of the earlier periods that, that you write about as well. One of the things that jumped out at me, um, it's a very small thing, but it, make, it made a lot of sense, was the reference to GM tomatoes. And I remember the kind of complete um, panic that there was around this issue of genetic engineering. And it was it was all geared towards tomatoes. It was in, in the UK, it was all about a company called Monsanto. I don't know if it was the same in the States or if it was different companies doing the same kind of things or, or or how all of that worked but um it, it, it really it something about that it really captured that moment in a way and i thought that was brilliant to bring that in to bring in something from our real world that is absolutely tied into this idea of genetic modification and that, and that taps into our real world fears that we did have at that moment about this obviously in your fictional version that you know that's the the tiniest tip of the iceberg and there's this you know huge uh kind of um secret project and see these you know secret supermen and superwomen uh going on sort of pretty much un um detected or, or not officially uh recognized by the the media and by by the sort of authorities and so on but um i, I just thought that was a kind of wonderful uh element of kind of linking the real world genetic um I don't know, sort of moral quandary uh, to this fictional moral quandary, which is much more about, you know, the slippery slope and look, this is this is the end point. I mean, that's what Star Trek seems to be saying is, you know, you don't start dabbling with these things. Uh, and even by the time you get to Deep Space Nine and you have these kind of slightly greyer questions of, you know, people who may be like Bashir, who did, uh, you know, I mean, arguably he well clearly he benefited very much from genetic modification other characters that he encounters along those storylines uh did not in various ways but you know the argument that star trek seems to present over and over and over again is kind of don't mess with this don't mess with nature in a sense because it will lead in a in a scary direction and that was exactly the kind of debate that people were having around these tomatoes um back in the 90s well there's a bit in the book involving a glow-in-the-dark rabbit who's yeah. been sort of injected with bioluminescent DNA kind of thing. Um, that's, that was real. I, 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 there, there was a glow in the dark bunny. Uh, and that being experimented, I think I, I knocked it ahead a few decades, you know, mm-hmm. but the glow in the dark belly was an actual experiment that took place. And I didn't make that up. Although it's funny. I was one of the things I struggled with with that book was how far believably could I have because I was sort of locked into the idea that Khan had to be an adult in the 1990s, how far back can you realistically push the idea that they were doing human genetic genetic engineering? I thought I, I pushed it back as far as I could because really, you know, Watson and Crick and double a lot of this stuff wasn't even, you know, how believable, even allowing for mad scientists, was it that there was genetic engineering creating children back in the 60s or the 70s? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Although there's something we should acknowledge, which is the whole bit about Khan being genetically engineered, the whole bit about Khan's people being genetically engineered, is a retcon. That was not mentioned in Space Seed. The whole yeah. idea that these people were genetically engineered comes from the wrath of Khan in the 80s. If you watch yeah. the original episode, they're just talking about eugenics, selective breeding. There's no talk about, you know, you can rationalize that eugenics experiments involving, but no one is talking about DNA or genetic engineering in the original Star Trek episode from the 60s. Mm-hmm. They're talking, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're thinking the Nazis. They're thinking eugenics experiments, selective breeding. It's not until we get to the 1980s that it's established that the eugenics wars is about genetic engineering. The 1960s episode is using an older meaning of eugenics, you know, older Nazi-ish meaning of eugenics, which is just, you know, sort of selective breeding experiments to produce a race of supermen, supermen yeah. and superwomen. That's yeah, absolutely. But it's, it, it's sort of funny to realize now that it's, it, we now take, take it for granted because it was established in Wrath of Khan and then subsequently in Deep Space Nine and every other reference to the eugenics wars, it was about genetic engineering. Space Seed is not about genetic engineering. Yeah, which is a fascinating point, I think, because it's partly because it's science fiction and because we expect it to be a sort of Frankenstein-y story and kind of pushing the boundaries of science. And, you know, we we do what we can rather than what we should. And we, you, you know, questioning these things. I mean, because these are such kind of... Um, classic science fiction tropes in some ways. But I think you're right, absolutely. I mean, when I went back, uh, you know, in preparation for this and watched Spacey, that struck me as well. And the fact that, you know, the original series has so much that is inspired by the experience of the Second World War, because, you know, many of the people who worked on the on the original series had been through the Second World War. It was quite recent history uh, for that. It was, you know, within living memory. Uh, for a lot of Matheson, who was where the writers fought at the Battle of the Bulge, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and that definitely puts a a particular spin on it as well, I think. The other thing that struck me, though, was one of the things that I think is fascinating about, you know, the way that you kind of solve this in your book, but also just the general story, is it wasn't one nation that had done this. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, I mean, like, yes, in the post-Second World War uh, era, we sort of think of, oh, okay, this was not Nazi Germany were doing all these things. We know Nazi Germany were awful because of all the other terrible things that happened during the Second World War. But I mean, in fact, actually, eugenics was a kind of international movement. I mean, in some ways, just looking into this, it, it seems from my understanding of it, that the Second World War almost, um, you know, quite rightly, uh, tarnished the reputation of genetics, but of, of eugenics. But before that, eugenics was a kind of fairly uh, widespread, popular uh, form of of you know the ideas about about these kind of uh, quite science fictiony in a way like improving the, the humanity and you know all the, lots of people with supposedly lofty goals were seeing this as um the new science that was going to help them kind of uh improve life for everyone and and this was the case all around the world and one of the things i think is interesting about the storyline uh from star trek's point of view is that it is this kind of internationalist story it's not just one country and and of course in you know in your book you you have to sort of rationalize well uh you, you know where did it all start yes it all starts with this one secret project in india although they are recruiting scientists from all over the world but then the fact that these children then get sort of spread all over the place so you've got you know a kind of um a sort of anti-government uh 
you know, nut job uh, guy with a sort of cult in America. You've got these kind of d- different, you know, you've got these leaders in the Balkans. You've got you've got these different um, characters springing up all over. And obviously that is, um, y- you know, that comes from the descriptions that we see in the actual kind of on-screen uh, canon. But it's an interesting way of, of looking at it because it it puts eugenics back as a sort of international project in some ways. In some ways, it's odd, rather con, which I love, and which is my favorite Star Trek movie, backed away from that. One of the inconsistencies yeah. is that in Space Seed, they make a point of, you know, stating that Khan and his people are, represent a wide range of, you know, races and ethnicities. He, he When he's calling out orders, it's Ling, McPherson, etc., you mm-hmm. know. But by the time we get to Wrath of Khan, for some reason, they've all turned into, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed Hitler youth, which I had to do some fast dancing around in the in the third book. But it's sort of strange. You can see that now Nazi influence to some degree. It's like Space Seed reflects the anxieties of the 60s and the later stuff with the genetic engineering reflects the anxieties of, you know, later areas and GM tomatoes and all that. And yet the Nazi thing goes through. In fact, the Nazi thing resurfaced even after they kind of veered away from it in Space Seed to make it an international movement, it kind of comes sliding back in Wrath of Khan because suddenly all of Khan's followers are blonde hair, blue haired you know, Aryan types. There's also that weird sort of um, thing about the kind of augment aesthetic. I find that kind of strange that in, so in the uh, Enterprise episodes that are about the augments, uh, which I really enjoy, actually, I, I, I have quite a lot of time for those episodes. But there's this sort of weird sense that the you know, with them with their kind of ripped outfits and everything, they they seem to be sort of calling back to the sort of aesthetic of the Wrath of Khan somehow, much more than the aesthetic of um, of Space Seed, if you know what I mean. There is that weird. Um, they suddenly they become barbarians and sort of World exactly, War. Or, or like yes, exactly, or like I always think that in Wrath of Khan they seem like a crew of pirates, you know. But there is that, exactly that sense of um, they're not these kind of noble supermen in that sense, in the way that Khan and Ricardo Montalban, of course, gives him such uh, sort of dignity and gravitas. And one of the interesting things about Space Seed is he does seem like a very, uh, you know, very charismatic. He's not a kind of moustache twirling villain at all. He is this very sort of persuasive character in some ways. Um, you, you know, he has a lot of good qualities as well as bad qualities, certainly in that first appearance. And yeah. And even we've got the whole sequence where you know, Kirk and Scotty and such even admit to some sort of grudging admiration for him as a historical figure, much to mm. Spock's dismay. You know, I, I can't believe you were romanticizing this 20th century barbarian, you know. And even the fact that they give, the fact that the episode, Space Seed, um, gives Khan a happy ending in a sense. You know, it ends with him, you know, Marla beaming down, they're going to build an empire to reign in, you know, the episode likes Khan enough that they give him a happy ending where he gets the girl. He isn't shipped off to a penal colony or blown up in, in, in some sort of, you know, James Bondian explosion. No, he gets he, he gets a planet to rule. He gets the woman he loves. He has a happy ending. And he is he is very, you know, he's very cultured. He is quoting Milton. And, and it's interesting. There's that moment where Kirk gets the reference uh you know, and Scotty doesn't. Scotty says, oh, you know, what, what was he talking about? So it's a weird sort of sense of a kind of, um, which you could say play, you know, comes back in the Wrath of Khan in a sense, but this sort of almost equivalence between Kirk and Khan, that they are kind of well-matched opposites somehow. And they sort of, there's that kind of mutual respect maybe um, between them on some level. They seem they seem to understand each other. Whereas you're right, obviously Spock just doesn't get it at all. To- totally doesn't get it. 
he's he's this vicious dictator. Although again, the episode takes because the episode kind of likes Khan. They mm. do tell us, and this was something that of the various genetic tyrants, well, I guess eugenics tyrants back in the day, of the various master race superhuman rulers that were fighting in the eugenics wars, that um, you know, Khan was he's, on, on paper was the best of a lot. He wasn't remembered mm-hmm. as. As, as 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 atrocious as the others, you know, Khan, you know, Spock takes pains to explain that he was in fact a dictator who ruled with an iron hand, but he wasn't apparently some sort of sadistic madman, mm-hmm. unlike some of the other his counterparts. And it's interesting, as described, if we're talking about the, that the eugenics wars, as they are very briefly described in Space Age, was not a battle between normal humanity and the evil superhumans. It was largely a battle between the various superhumans jockeying for power among themselves. Which is quite an interesting element. And it's one of the ways that I suppose, and I, I don't know why, I mean, I... Taking it, yeah, know, regular humanity against the evil mutants, you know. Absolutely, it is, it is. And also I think it, it helps, you know, in terms of the books that you were writing, it makes it easier to... Uh, to to comprehend that this is a conflict that's going on slightly beneath the surface or that's being covered up to some extent or that's sort of um that generally people are not totally aware of whereas if it was uh kind of exactly humans against mutants or whatever it would be harder to sort of keep the lid on that somehow well the conceit for the people listening who have not read those books is basically is that what the future now knows of as the eugenics wars was not called that back then and mm-hmm. that the average person didn't see the big picture. You had all these atrocities and brush fire wars and, you know, a, you know, civil wars in Asia and elsewhere and, you know, crazy survivalist militias in America. These were all part of, these were the eugenics wars. It was future historians who put the pieces all together and realized, but at the time this was kind of confidential. It was all hush hush. We, we basically applied the X-Files Mm. approach to star trek history that this was all going on there were people in the know like gary seven who saw the big picture but to the average person it was like there was there was a civil war here there was a government coup here there was a terrorist attack here and it all those were the eugenics wars but it was the average person did not know that the eugenics wars were going on Mm. and you could even point to the voyager episode People always point to well, where were the eugenics wars, you know, on that Voyager episode where they went back to the 20th century. Mm. I, I like to point out that if, you know they were only there for like 24 hours at the Voyager group. <laughs> then yeah. honestly, World War II was a vast global conflagration that consumed the entire world and everything. This doesn't mean that every corner of the Earth was a post-apocalyptic wasteland. If you beamed into Los Angeles in the middle of World War II, you know you are not seeing battlefields, wastelands, ruins, refugees, you're seeing, you know, yeah, if you look close enough, there's probably posters up for war bonds, and there's a USO show going on, but, and if you picked up the newspaper, you would fear about fighting in the Pacific and fighting in Europe, but, you know, nowhere does it say that, you know, the entire planet was laid waste, that, you know, San Francisco was a smoking ruin. There was, you know, in World War One, in World War Two, and I'm speaking as an American, you know, you could go to Chicago. You're not going to find you're not going to find yourself in the middle of a of a, of a massive world war. The world war is going on elsewhere. 
mm-hmm. you know, there's people are going to movies, or grocery stores, taking taxi rides. So I, I like to think that if the Voyager people had stayed hung around longer in 1990, yeah, they would have picked up a newspaper and seen that, gosh, Khan Noonien Singh was raining, you know, off in you know, Rajasthan somewhere. But yeah. when they were just running around madly trying to avoid putting changing the history and they're running into evil Bill Gates, mm. you know, again, if you went back to, you know, watch Oboe's in the 1940s, not everyone is about the war. There are romantic comedies, there's domestic dramas, there's teenagers sure. going to proms, there's Andy Hardy wondering who to take, what girl to take to the dance. I, I think, you know, I don't think that that Voyager episode I rationalize is inconsistent with the eugenics wars happening, and especially not with the sort of scattered, diffuse, sort of soft underground war going on in my novels. Which is very much, you know, I mean, A is kind of fitting with that sort of post-World War II, you know, with with the Cold War and certainly with the conflicts that took place after that as well. It's kind of, that is more, when we talk about wars, that is sort of maybe more what we understand. But also I think it's interesting you mentioned the X-Files because of course the X-Files, you you know, is very much of that era itself. You know, it's a very 90s series. And again, and a series that is very much concerned with digging up these kind of things from the past. And a lot of them ultimately do go back to the Second World War. And there is that sense of this kind of 1990s preoccupation with a particular aspect of the Second World War. And I think you see it in Voyager as well in the 90s, it, uh, you know, and in Deep Space Nine, maybe in different ways. But but particularly, you know, in Star Trek and in the X-Files, this kind of interest in these kind of dubious experiments or in this kind of guilt associated with uh with the war and the kind of um these sort of unacceptable things that were going on you know not just the holocaust but also particularly kind of experiments or kind of um pseudoscientific um abuses of various kinds i suppose and i think that is an interesting aspect and you, you know as, as you said absolutely going back to space seeds that must have been something that was very much uh in the minds of the writers in in that period, I think would have been, you, you know, because this was a big element of the Nuremberg trials, where some of the the stuff connected to these sort of Nazi experiments and Nazi um, ideals, you know, and that kind of eugenic ideal, and you, you know, there was a lot of um, you know ster- forced sterilization, these these kind of things, because I mean, there, there's there's there are different ways of performing eugenics i suppose in a sense aren't there you're either you're um you know the way that maybe people breed dogs or whatever you know you pick the best ones and try and put them together and you try and get get the qualities that you're looking for but the other aspect of eugenics is the kind of flip side of that where you are basically trying to prevent certain people from breeding and, and a lot you know and in the wars in the years even before world war ii all over the world i mean that was going on in america that was going on i think it was going on in britain you, you know many many countries there were policies of various kinds um that were connected really to trying to stop certain people uh from reproducing one way or another and indeed the 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 old-fashioned idea James, you can even see it in uh science fiction prior to star trek heinlein did a whole series of novels about a bunch of very long left people who had been bred for specifically bred as part of a secret scientific project for longevity. Right. That was not the sort of evil. We must stop, you know, the lesser people from breeding. That was just, Oh, well, these people, these, these people has a lot of longevity in their family. Let's breed them. And eventually in Heinlein's, you know, future history, you end up with these very long lived people just because they've been cross breeding back and forth families with, you know, 
long lifespans, which get longer and longer, you know. So that, that, would, that was in, built into science fiction before Star Trek. And that's mm-hmm. probably the kind of eugenics. I, I do think Spacey was coming very much out of, you know, the Nazis and the master race thing. Although it's interesting, the original script for Space Seed, Khan was not Indian. He was not a Sikh. He was, in fact, a Viking type called Leif Erikson or something. Mm-hmm. Originally, they were going to make him this Viking Aryan Germanic guy. I guess maybe they thought that was too on the nose. I don't know why at some point they decided to make him you know, East Asian instead. But you know, in the original draft, um, he was, I can't remember the exact name, but they, he was this Viking-esque blonde hair blue eye guy which ties into this sort of question around you know how can you cast benedict cumberbatch as khan and all you know all these sort of issues people i remember people were saying then well you know khan originally was you know was uh you know wasn't supposed to be a Sikh or whatever but i mean it's that absolutely i i think it those kind of decisions change a lot of the way that the story plays out because you're right it's it's not in that sense it's not tying into that kind of you know, Aryan master race is not tying into that sort of, um, they veered away from that thing. They, they did absolutely. And I, and I think that is one of the things that makes the story more interesting and, and richer in some ways is, is a decision like that, which kind of moves away. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, as much as Star Trek is often very allegorical, it is, it, that, that's there, I suppose, is an example of, of taking something slightly away from the kind of, immediate sort of inspiration or or, or whatever and and kind of trying to complicate it a little bit Uh, and I think that absolutely sort of serves the story going forward but it's interesting you were talking about you know the debt to kind of other science fiction the other uh story that occurs to me is brave new world you you know and this idea of this kind of when you are if you are thinking about kind of genetic modification kind of um you know unnatural forms of uh kind of reproduction and so on. Although I was very interested in your book and this had never really occurred to me that, you know, these are not kids that are grown in, they're not grown like Borg in a maturation chamber or something. They're, they're requiring um, willing female participants to bear the, you, you know, to be pregnant just as the Nazis did, you, you know, required um, women to, to bear these children in a sense. Um, and that was one of the interesting aspects of it that really you know i'd never really thought through before in terms of thinking about where do these where do these kids come from i had always sort of thought of them as a sort of a science experiment grown in a lab somehow almost um without thinking that there was a you know that sort of real biological um component to it as well i can't remember entirely because you know i i wrote those books many many at this point decades ago Sure. I think that was partly a function of me just trying to keep it sort of grounded in reality. And how far back can I push all this future science into the nineteen sixties and seventies? Maybe sure. I don't. Maybe I don't need to have scientists in the nineteen seventies making kids in laboratories. Maybe it's an artificial insemination thing. Seem more realistically something they would be doing in nineteen seventies. You know, science wise. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it is interesting sort of looking at how these sort of ideas have played out in other uh, science fiction stories um, uh, and the kind of concerns that go along with them. And I mean, I, I'm, again, I sort of feel like we keep coming back to the 90s, partly because obviously the 90s is when this supposed uh, w- wars took place as far as Star Trek's concerned, but also because I suppose you see it playing out in you know, in storylines in the 1990s, I mean, I'm thinking of the, the film Gattaca, for example, which I, I don't remember when that was released, but that must have been kind of 
around that time. Um, and obviously DS9 getting kind of interested in this subject again, kind of in the late 90s with Dr. Bashir and his sort of storylines. And it does sort of feel like there's that... Um, sense, as I said, about the GM tomatoes and so on, then somehow it feels more, um, it feels kind of connected in a, in a sort of different way. And then there's that other side of, um, I don't know if you've seen the TV series Orphan Black, but that, that show seemed to be very much, which was all about clones, uh, and very much ended up being about this kind of, um, the Victorian era, the sort of birth of all these sort of things, you know, and the birth of kind of eugenics and so on and, and genetics and these sort of things and going back almost to sort of Darwin and these kind of ideas. And, and the person who coined the term eugenics um, was in fact the cousin of Darwin. So it is, there is absolutely, it sort of goes, you know, this kind of um, this idea, this potentially very dangerous idea really does go right the way back. You know, it does sort of go back that far to these kind of Victorian ideas and this sort of Victorian mindset. Um, and obviously the sort of Victorian mindset is quite different in many ways to the Nazi mindset. I mean, they have certain things in common, but they're, you know, they're almost different ways of, of sort of looking at it. And then Star Trek has its own sort of mindset and its own kind of ideals and so on. Um, and then there is this sort of interesting question of like, what are the, you know, what, what, why does Star Trek, which is this kind of very technologically sophisticated, um, you know, society that we're presented within the Federation, um, that there are sort of, sort of certain areas, and this is absolutely one of them, where there seems to be a real pushback against, uh, science and against the potential for scientific advances because of the, these kind of moral questions. There's a kind of real break put on it. I will admit that, yeah, you know, when I'm writing a Star Trek novel, I, I feel obliged to pay some lip service to the Federation Party line, which mm -hmm. is that genetic engineering is, you know, a bad thing and we should not do it. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be honest, in real life, I, 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 I'm not sure I'm entirely there. I mean, obviously, if you could fix certain, you know, genetic diseases, the, the, the strict, strict Federation policy of we don't do this, you know, I, I'm not sure in the does like I said, run against a little bit of, you know, the whole sort of yay, yay science attitude of Star Trek, you know. Mm. And I'm not sure necessarily that the idea presented even Spacey that, you know, genetic humans is, are, is going to lead to, you know, you know, evil, tyrannical superhumans, you know, with megalomaniacal, you know. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, particularly in the framing sequence of, of my books where they actually do visit a genetically engineered colony of genetically engineered people who are wanting to join the federation i i managed to slip some argument back and forth that it maybe this isn't as black and white as the federation likes to paint it sure. and indeed, you can argue since deep space nine's whole agenda was also to maybe to look at the shady or, or the, not shady but the gray areas of federation yeah. policy as well yeah uh you you can make a case that maybe the Federation has overreacted. And yeah, they're traumatized by Khan and the eugenics wars and all that. But is genetic engineering, human genetic engineering, an absolute evil? I, I'm not sure I can go there myself. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Lord knows there's a number of people born with genetic diseases and disorders and cystic fibrosis and muscular sclerosis. If we could fix that genetically, why not? And maybe they do. In fact, we do get the impression that, in fact, for, I'm not sure it's a certain, we've, we've been spelled out. If you watch Next Gen, they do seem to use the magic DNA a lot to fix people. So apparently, some level of generic engineering is allowed. Apparently, the high. I'm thinking out loud as I'm talking here. I think mm -hmm. the po Federation policy seems to be that 
genetic engineering is okay for medicine. If you can go in and do a genetic fix to cure somebody of some terrible disease, you can do it. You can't change the baseline of human. Yeah. You can fix defective, I use the word not to sound ableist, but to mm-hmm. use, you know, you can use people, you can use medicine to fix people who may have been exposed to radiation poisoning or whatever, or transporter accidents, or have some sort of, you know, uncongenital condition you can use genetics. Where they, the Federation seems to draw a line is we're not going to make superior people because that way madness lies. And that that's the slippery yeah. slope. We don't go down there. And yeah, that's, yeah. you could make a case if you want to draw a deadline that, okay, genetic engineering to bring people up to maintain a certain baseline level of health, that's fine. You know, to correct birth defects, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, but no, we're not going to make people small faster we're not going to create the x-men we're not perfecting that's that's the thing we're, we're not sort of trying to make a better human and i actually think voyager uh tackled this issue very well in the episode lineage as well where they, they absolutely draw that distinction between a procedure that is going to be sort of medically correcting something and uh and and decisions that are more about sort of cosmetic things or, or more about making decisions about well we'd rather you, you know exactly like you know Belana is saying she'd rather the daughter look less cling on they'd rather or, you know and she ends up with a different hair also interestingly it ends up making her the child's hair go blonde as well so it does sort of almost tie into that kind of blonde hair blue eyed thing but you, you know very much that there's sort of there's a boundary and sometimes it can seem slightly gray because she and the doctor end up sort of quibbling a little bit over, you know, the, the cling on third lung and so on. And she's saying, well, that's just like an appendix. It's a useless thing. You know, why don't you get rid of that at the same time? Um, but this sort of question of, you know, what is sort of medically necessary? And actually, you know, thinking about that film Gattaca, that one of the things that's quite freaky about that movie i think is this sense that you know people are making all these everything is chosen you know it's choosing this and choosing that and the the main character in that the ethan hawke character is this sort of real aberration of a child that was conceived naturally and his parents just decide to sort of leave it to chance in a sense you know which is are you out of your mind i know exactly all that any of us turning your children's biological destiny over to chance you know yeah (laughs) but you know the interesting thing is i mean with those ds9 episodes I felt going back and watching Dr. Bashir, I presume now compared to, you know, watching it in first run. I mean, I have a four year old now and I felt for the first time watching it this week, I felt very sympathetic towards his parents in a way that I never had before. I'd always been very much on Bashir's side and felt like his parents were kind of um, misguided and awful. Um, and it is sort of, you know, he, he it's, it's interesting because he has this sort of sense. Obviously, he's been given this great intelligence. So and he, he uh, has been gifted a lot in a sense by the fact that this procedure went well for him but he also has this sense of sort of um kind of having lost something or or feeling like his parents didn't want him or whatever but at the same same time from the parents point of view you know there is that kind of terrible worry of you you know you spend so much time like comparing your child to to what other kids are doing and kind of worrying about these things you know are they doing enough of this sort of thing and are they you know is there writing behind or is this thing behind or are they do, do you know what i mean these are the kind of worries that parents have and i mean i'm not advocating genetic engineering but you know i felt like i could sort of slightly more understand where they're coming from if they feel there's something that is holding their child back uh and that there's something that they can do about it then you know i i suspect a lot of parents would do slightly 
you know, questionable things in those circumstances. But then it's interesting, you have that sort of debate and, and Worf is the one saying, you know, but that's not fair. And, you, you know, if one person does it, everyone's going to do it. And all this sort of thing about like drugs in sport and all these sort of ideas, you, you know, that you sort of, that it's all, for him, it's almost about playing by the rules and the rules are no one does this uh, because if one person starts doing it, then it kind of... Um, it's unfair to the people who didn't get the treatment. Exactly, yeah. To make them super smarter and A students. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're kind of dealing with that now with the whole college admissions scandal. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's again, but where the people involved are rationalizing this in terms of, yeah, well, I'm just trying to secure the best outcome for my child. Isn't that what a parent is supposed to do? You know? Yeah. And yeah. that means giving my parent child an extra edge. Well, I'm, if it comes down to a matter of principle versus giving my parent, my child an advantage in life, I'm going to take the child advantage in life, you know? Yeah. So far, no Hollywood stars are arranging to have their children genetically engineered that we know of. But who knows? <laughs> Maybe in a few years' time. But it's, I suppose that the other thing is that Star Trek, you know, you're right. Star Trek sort of has a certain line on this. And as much as it can be, it can kind of be questioned because we do have, you know, in Enterprise, we have those uh, discussions where Flox is sort of saying, well, you know, the Denobulans have been doing genetic engineering for generations and we just, you know, we know where to, where to stop. We sort of know where the line is. You, you know, it didn't cause wars and chaos on our planet. But it sort of seems like um, in terms of, in Star Trek more generally, it has to be seen somehow to go wrong. So even something like the Masterpiece Society and Next Gen, where they seem to have produced quite a kind of comfortable, functional uh you, you know a fairly benign and pleasant society they're not all going around you know seeking power and killing each other or whatever their their society seems quite functional until people come from outside and start kind of disturbing it but at the same time there's this sense that there's something kind of weak about it because uh because for example they've um because they've eliminated disability, for example, uh, they don't have anyone, uh, you, you know, developing something like Geordie's visor. And therefore, you know, they're not able to, because the visor plays a key part in that storyline one way or another. So that they're kind of, they're almost holding themselves back. There's this sense that because they've made things too, too perfect and too cozy. But they're not uh, allowing any element of chance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets back to Gattaca. Like I said, the, the, oh my God, why would you trust your child's DNA to rolling the genetic dice? The people in the Masterpiece Society don't do that, but as God, you don't get any freak prodigies. You don't, you know. Yeah. They're, they're not allowing any element of chance or surprise in their society, and therefore it's very stable, and therefore, you know, they possibly lack any surprising breakthroughs or revolutions, you know, because they're, they are structured to maintain stability. Whereas, interesting, I suppose, when you get to DS9, I mean, so we've got Dr. Bashir's storyline, but then we've also got those two episodes that feature those other genetically engineered characters who are notably less well adjusted than he is. But they're not the, I mean, and they, I think, refer to themselves as mutants at one point and, and freaks and so, and so on. But they're very much not uh, the kind of megalomaniacal Superman like Khan. They're more. They're more inspired by Rain Man or something. Exactly, yeah. And that's, and there's even this sort of sense of the kind of autistic savant. Uh, element with them you know being able to uh be incredibly um able in some quite limited areas but sort of socially uh unable to kind of interact with other people um in a kind of normal way and sort of brilliant but slightly morally do you know what i mean there is that sort of sense i suppose where they're kind of they're slightly cut off from what we might think of a sort of ordinary human function they're a little off or another they're a little off, yeah, one way or another. Um, but that's kind of quite an interesting way of almost rewriting that story in a sense. And and 
I feel like they they do sort of keep emphasizing these are the ones where the engineering didn't take. It's like they got a you know bad like backroom uh, genetic engineer or whatever to work on them, and it kind of didn't quite work out, and they came out worse than they went in. But at the same time, it's a sort of it's a different way of looking at it. If you know, if the original series is saying you meddle with this, you get tyrants, you get kind of uh, Hitler types, you get sort of ideologues, you get uh, these sort of monsters in a sense. Um, DS9 is sort of yeah, saying you meddle with this, you get ambition. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas DS9 seems to be sort of saying you meddle and you get people with sort of um, more relatable sort of uh, personality issues or kind of. Um, I don't know, you, you know, you might say sort of um, uh, autistic spectrum, the, the, these kind of, it feels like this is the the model that they're kind of uh, gesturing towards there somehow is that it's to do with these, these kind of um, sort of conditions that we maybe relate to in the real world. Well, here you can see, like I said, all Star Trek shows, although set in, you know, an imaginary future of Star Trek are products of their time, you know, mm. uh, at least, Discuss space seed. You can see World War II heavily woven into space seed. By the time you get to the 1990s and the X Files, notwithstanding, there there are different concerns and different worries and a different approach to these things. They're not they're not they're not worrying about you know creating an army of you know brand new Hitler so much, you know. They're more, it's basically, the, it's the sort of anti-vax movement, effectively, isn't it? That Star Trek is almost uh, almost putting there, you know, saying, you know, don't meddle because exactly, you know, that's the that's the fear that you, you know, vaccines give people autism or whatever. That, that does seem to be almost what Star Trek is saying. Genetic engineering gives, you know, has a kind of similar... One does not want to think that Star Trek, you know, both <laughs> and vaxxers, but... Yeah. Yeah. But in fact, you know, yes, there's yeah, that's that's sort of the same anxiety that ooh, you must not meddle with you know things, man must leave alone, you know, and sort of ooh, mixing, you know, tampering, tampering this stuff would be bad, you know, and science is scary. Well, and maybe it's maybe part of it is that Star Trek has a very you know it does have this very uh, high tech future, it does have this very sort of utopian ideal, but it is quite kind of. On the technical side, it's on the slightly cool side, if you know what I mean. It's kind of machinery and so on. And it's not, I mean, compared to something like, say, Ian M. Banks's culture novels, which have in some ways a kind of similar sort of post-scarcity, quite utopian society. But there everyone is uh, modified and they're glanding different drugs and secretions. And it, it has a much more sort of biological side of it. I feel like Star Trek maybe has always slightly shied away from that kind of... Um, I, I suppose it, it is the kind of Star Trek transhumanism and all that up yeah, until now. Yeah. Yeah. Up until you know, there's more Star Trek to come. But yeah, mm. to date, Star Trek has stayed away from the whole transhumanist thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he's quite suspicious of you know even things like um, life prolongation or do you, do you know what I mean? Anyone who's sort of trying to get a bit more out of their by I suppose because Star Trek is always very invested in the idea of human beings as you know, as what they are, as quite sort of earthy, as quite kind of um, imperfect. I mean, as, as much as we might say sort of next gen, for example, we see these sort of perfected, sort of idealised human beings in a sense, in moral terms. Uh, Star Trek always wants to get back to, you know, these sort of flawed, squidgy uh, humans on some level. Well, if you go back to TOS, indeed, you know, TOS is, you know, people like to throw on the word you know, utopian at Star Trek, and I, I have a whole rant about how Star- TOS is not utopia. You know, it's mm. things are better, but you mentioned people are squishy and imp- life is messy and people are imperfect. And 
the original series for all had very actually mixed feelings about technology. For every yay yay, Scotty has managed to find a technical fix and save our days. How many episodes are there where evil computers have taken over mankind, where evil mm-hmm. androids are replacing us, where some, you know, where evil sport, you know, Star Trek had a deep sort of suspi- worry about the machine, about computers and dehumanization. This is a theme that pops up over and over again. You've got the, the you know, what's his name, Cogley, the lawyer who refuses to, who hangs on to his old analog books because he doesn't trust computers and proves eventually proves the computer frame Kirk. You know, yeah, and. Generally, as a rule, if Kirk and his crew come to a planet that seems too stable, too peaceful, too utopian, there's a fly in the ointment. There's yeah. there's evil spores, you know, tranquilizing people. There's an insane computer god, you know. And usually there's a happy ending where, oh, good, look, people are getting drunk and losing their tempers and, you know. You know, this side of paradise where they're all sort of relieved to find out that people aren't all super or getting in, or losing their tempers and acting like, you know, fallible humans again. And that's what, you know, Kirk doesn't like it when he runs into some planet where everybody's perfectly complacent and some computer, you know, Landru, Vol, you know, mm-hmm. a number of computers that, you know, everything is tranquil and peaceful. And we do not know about sex or violence. You know, no, you know, no. Kirk's like, bring back the sex and violence. Okay. You know, yeah. Yeah. He's got all these speeches like in the Apple and things about how we're not meant to be perfect. And, you know, we got to be human and, you know, and thank God I saw two guys get into a fist fight today and thank God they're normal again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that ties in with the idea that, you know, that, Hanging on to humanity, not being turned into a cyborg. I mean, and the Borg is, again, all about coming, taking your humanity away from you and, yeah. and quote, making you perfect. Yeah. They, they're not, they're more technological, they're not technogenic engineering, but it's the same idea that staying a weak, imperfect, irrelevant human and, you know, whom, you know, 709 looks down her nose at, you know, is a good thing. And to get too technologically advanced, be it by, you know, selective breeding by genetic engineering or having the board come in and simulate you is, is a bad thing. You want to say, you know, you, you don't perfecting, perfecting humans never goes well because the board are, are all about perfection. They'll tell you over and over yeah. again, you're your face. They're, they're improving you. They're perfecting you. And they're sort of the logical extension of let's, you know, you know, improve on humanity. We are going to, you know, completely take away your humanity and make you this perfect Borg creature, you know, and we're like, and, no. And, this, and this is a horror story in the universe of Star Trek. Losing humanity is a horror. Absolutely, and I mean the Borg are also, uh, you know, they really are eugenicists because they're they're basically racists aside from anything else. In that they will say, you know, some some species they'll say we're not going to bother assimilating them. They don't have anything that we need. Do you know what I mean? There is a real sense of you know not only are they the best, but of the people who aren't as good as them, some of them are kind of on a closer level. And that very much does tie into, I suppose, you, you know, you could say going back to the Nazis. I mean, the Nazis treated different, you, you know, they treated the British different than they treated the Russians because they thought the British were kind of above the Russians and, and you, you're sort of up on the, more on the level with them. I mean, you, you know, these kind of ideas of, um, I suppose it is that sort of pseudoscience of kind of, and it is the kind of, and again, with the Borg, there is that element of the the biological, which is part of what's sort of horrifying about them. Yes, they're very automated and they're kind of mechanical, but they're also, it's the cyborg element of it that is kind of freaky about it somehow. They're not just an army. They're not Cybermen. Do you know what I mean? They're not, well, actually, Cybermen maybe is a bad example because there are people in there, but they're, they're not even on the surface, a kind of army of robots in a sense. 
they are they're, they're more threatening in a way than law is you know their whole fear is grabbing you and assimilating you you know mm. taking your brain and putting it into a robot body which is creepy is is it's arguably less scary than being turned into this weird sort of half human half machine thing you know exactly that's kind of and they do grow babies in in you know maturation chambers and things i mean there is something kind of slightly freaky and kind of brave new worldy about that in a way but i suppose it's interesting you know thinking about star trek taking this position i mean on one level i think you're right there is a kind of almost a sort of luddite quality uh particularly with someone like kirk i mean maybe less so later on but but star trek does sort of have that built into it and it is strange in some ways for a science fiction franchise uh to to have that kind of baked into it baked into its dna you know i was going to say but you, you know literally that is that is part of its sort of its personality somehow science well science fiction has always had two strains it's not, science fiction has not always been mm. rah 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 the, the cautionary sure. fable we've mentioned brave new world 1984 you know mm. um frankenstein on, you know, the the frankenstein yes it's you know mm. Right. You know, the, the, the cautionary fable of, oh, my God, where is this science leading to us? The Andromeda strain, you know. Yeah. There, 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 there's been this constant sort of dynamic push pull between, ooh, science fiction, science is so cool. Look at us. We're going to Mars. Oh, God, the computers have taken over. The robots have taken over. You know, the, the Terminators are coming to kill us. Sure. Indeed, yeah. Star Trek, one of the things that's unique about Star Trek, the original series, and I, I always go back to TOS because, well, I'm old, um, is that in its own way, it actually was it it was more positive and pro science than most science fiction up to then most of us mm -hmm. you know you look at you know stuff like the invaders land of, they were they were horror stories the, the aliens were coming to take us over or we're going out of the space and we're meeting terrible aliens and bringing them back and you know war of the worlds and you know yeah. time machine you go in the future and you meet the morlocks and you know mo and the most subsequent science you know the terminator is profoundly you know Oh my God, we're going to destroy ourselves. Plan mm -hmm. the Apes, we're going to destroy ourselves. Look, you know, dystopias run through science fiction. And indeed, sure, yeah. in pop culture TV, I'd have to sit down and do the math. I would argue that probably the majority of science fiction TV shows have some sort of dystopian premise. There's been a post apocalyptic, we're in a post apocalyptic world. Mm -hmm. The gorillas have taken over, the cyborgs have taken over, the robots have taken over, the Martians have taken over, V, the, the, the lizard people have come and taken over, you know. Star Trek is a positive, you know, but even but Star Trek, it's interesting. It has its occasional moments of we're not sure we want to give this much power to the computers. We're not sure this yeah. discovery, which could transform humanity, is a good thing. And maybe it manages to maintain that kind of utopian. Like Star Trek hasn't turned to a dystopia, you know, so far, if you know what I mean, partly maybe by by having those reservations. But one of the things that strikes me, you know, thinking about this subject of genetic engineering, genetic modification and so on, you know, looking forward, I mean, I think probably, you know, even in the, the decades since the 90s, probably people have become more familiar with some of these things and maybe more comfortable with them. Uh, is there a sense that, you know, as time moves forward and maybe these things do start to become more a part of our lives and this does seem to be something that maybe we start tinkering with more is star trek going to look increasingly is that sort of official star trek position going to look increasingly sort of uh kind of reactionary and alarmist in a sense um and are we going to think no the denobulans are the ones who've got it right you know i, I think so you mentioned frankenstein and you look at a lot at a lot of the stuff you know you watch old frankenstein movies not just you know, the mary shelley novel mm. a lot you know 
they, that, those stories get a lot of mileage out of the horror of the idea of, oh, my God, pieces being transplanted from person to person and, you know, mm. digging up bodies and cutting them up and putting people's brains in wrong bodies. And you know, nowadays we all have organ donor, you know, things on our on our driver's licenses. Yeah. We, we, yeah. I think one of the reasons why people have no one's really being able to get Frankenstein going as popular as, you know, Dracula these days is mm-hmm. to a certain degree, we live in a world where, oh, kidney transplants are routine, liver transplants are routine, cornea trans, pe- taking out people's, dead people's eyes and putting dead people's eyes in your head. You know, in the old days, this was the stuff of horror. There was the old story, The Hands of Orlock, which, is a, which was an old horror movie staple where about the guy who gets the hands of a strangler. Nowadays, we don't blink at this. I mean, which why it's kind of a struggle to make some of the old stuff in Frankenstein scary to modern audiences because, oh my God, he's cutting up dead bodies and stitching them together. Well, yeah, well, I just got a kidney transplant from you know the organ bank the other day. This is part of our lives. It could well be that as without genetic engineering or even cybernetics become more routine, oh, so there's that character on Star Trek and he's got a prosthetic robot arm. Well, why not, you know? Yeah. And in fact, you see this on Discovery. Discovery, I, I unfortunately can't remember the name of the character, but they've got a character on mm-hmm. the bridge of Discovery who is, her backstory is she was in some horrific accident and now she's 50% robot. Aaron. And this is not treated as, I mean, so this, was, this was clearly something that, you know, she did not plan. It was a result of a tragedy, but she's not portrayed as a monster on the show. She was a crew no, member absolutely. on the show. Yeah, Although yeah. inevitably they did the episode, spoiler alert, where somebody mm-hmm. hacked into her and, you know, turned her against him. Just as people, someone, just as come to think of it, they, people have been known to hack into Jordy's artificial eyes on occasion, yeah. you know, advisors oh, on occasion. Or hack into data as well. There is that sort of. Yeah. But I, I do think that even watching Discovery, you see they're more comfortable having, well, cyborgs on the show, you know, on the show, because, mm-hmm. well, why wouldn't. It, it, in fact, it's kind of weird watching TOS in the age you see people with these horrible injuries, and it's like, well, we could fix that today. You know, why is the guy from Consciousness of the King wandering around with a you know face mask over his face? Surely, twenty third century science would be able to fix his burned face. But you know, mm-hmm. so I think it makes sense. But of course, the people would have. Again, Picard had a had a, had an artificial heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he did. He did. It's true. And, and now visually, like I said, I, I, you can sort of see more sort of robot-y android characters you know, creeping into Discovery and its various spinoffs, which indicates maybe that the idea of oh, t- tinkering with humanity to the degree of, well, giving her somebody artificial eyes is no longer the stuff of a Boris Karloff movie. It's, you know, it, it's the cutting edge of modern science. Oh, a few years from now, everyone will have, you know, we're, we're starting to, you know, talk about growing livers and kidneys and, 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 and using art of, you know, 3D printers to print people, you know, lenses and, you know, valve and heart valves and things. So I think, again, as, as real science catches up, suddenly, oh, well, that was a scary prospect, but now my uncle has a mechanical, you know, has pig valves in his chest and so-and-so just got a 3D printed new leg. You may see more cyborg characters in Star Trek and they would not be treated as, you know, with the horror of, you know, you say, see, in the old episode about, uh, what our little girl's made of, where the guy being part robot is now a, a, a shocker horror finale, you know? Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess this is one of the dangers in some ways of having a 50 plus year franchise is that, you know, you are, which is kind of where we started off in this discussion that, you, you know, the fact of them predicting something being in the 1990s when that seemed safely in the future. Uh, and, and you get it again, of course, because DS9 was predicting things happening in, you know, sort of around this. I think the sanctuary districts were kind of pretty much where we're sort of up on that time. The period, sanctuary really districts are coming yeah. up any, any day now, and that's kind of terrifying it's, how close well, they and- yeah <laughs> i mean you could well believe it frankly i mean yeah <laughs> they, they, they maybe just bang on the money with that one i don't know but i mean but generally that is the danger with kind of positing things in the future is, is if you're you know if you if you have that longevity then you you know you could say the same thing about 1984 i mean obviously that was published in 1948 when 1984 seems a long way in the future now for us 1984 is you know uh well in the past as a kind of as a real date but obviously in the in the terms of that novel we imagine that uh you know it, it is this kind of other other reality that's created in fiction somehow Some but whether you know we we played games to get the eugenics wars to work in the books but eventually mm-hmm. you're you know you, you as real history creeps up overlaps star trek history i mean in theory we should have you know launched that damn saturn probe by now you know yeah um, <laughs> you know, Captain Sean Christopher or whatever in his Saturn probe, you know, that mm-hmm. should be, you know, we, we, we've left that kind of in the dust already. And it won't be long before the Vulcans are due. And, you know, when they don't turn up, think of the disappointment. I mean, you know. Presumably they show up after we've had a catastrophic apocalyptic world war. Well, that's war. true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, so, we, so there, there is an argument. The whole civilization yeah. wiped out before the Vulcans show up. I would just as soon do that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe we are living in the, the best of all possible universes, you know, after all. <laughs> well, even these compared to Star Trek. You know, we, we've skipped the Jenks Wars, but again, we skipped the Jenks Wars. On the other hand, you know, apparently we, we don't have sleeper ships. Oh, those are the mm-hmm. old time sleeper ships they used back in the 90s. What? Yeah. You know, yeah. I rationalized that by making the Botany Bay a top secret project being, you know, engineered at Area 51 from Quark's old spaceship. Mm-hmm. But you know the the implication of Spacey was oh that's when the old 1990s models interstellar sleeps you know you know um, sleeper ships which we didn't really have in 1990 you know and it will only get worse the more time goes by but you know this is something this is something you know this is a, a an element of Star Trek's longevity I suppose is that it has to kind could, of could engage be worse, with these could be issues. space 1999 yeah that's true good point. <laughs> And obviously, we'll have to wait and see how, you know, this issue of um, genetic modification, genetic engineering. I mean, it is something that, you know, it came up in the, well, as you, you're right, say it was specifically eugenics and not genetic engineering in that sense in the 60s. It came back again in the 80s. It came back, uh, you know, with DS9 again in the 90s. It came back with Enterprise. It does feel like it's a topic that Star Trek keeps returning to. It came up again with it with uh, Star Trek, you know, Into Darkness. Yeah, of course, absolutely, with Into Darkness, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how the kind of new um uh, kind of roster of star trek that we're getting uh now in this in this kind of new moment this kind of revival in a sense of of star trek in production whether that is a theme that gets touched on again and and you know does it have a slightly different inflection in the same way as you say that you know the cyborg elements in discovery seem to be handled differently are we going to see a sort of different angle on this um whole element of you know genetic manipulation you know, are we even going to see? I mean, there was talk, wasn't there, of um, Nicholas Meyer doing a miniseries. I don't know how much of this was just speculation or how much was genuine, but he, he definitely seemed to be working on something that had some link to. Khan. I think it was I in development. Was- I'm not sure how you know mini 
projects, alas, are often in development. I, I think course, someone yeah. went to it, but it never got greenlit that I know. Right. Of. But I mean, that would have been quite interesting to see in some ways, you know, how does, you know, how, how does 2019 kind of approach those sort of themes and those kind of issues differently to, you know, how 1980, when was the Rothbard 82? Uh, sort of early 80s anyway. How, how did, how, you know, that period of time, uh, how does that affect the way that we kind of um, see that storyline in some ways? As far as I know, what I could be blanking, so, I'm, so far, like I said, the new stuff, Discovery, and, you know, down the road, Picard, mm. and, you know, haven't really tied done much with the eugenics wars or mm. con or Jenkins yet, unless I'm blanking on something, you know. Nothing jumps out to me. But it, I mean, obviously, it is a big part of kind of Star Trek, you know, canon and history that is a, a rich area to kind of go into one way or another. I can't imagine they'll leave that alone too long for too long, you know. One episode we haven't mentioned is Conscience of the King, which mm. also ties into this. It, it's not really spelled out. But again, you, a conscious key is never so that comes very clearly out of World War II because, you know, um, what's his name? You know, Kodos. Thank you. I yeah. think I remember Anton Caridian, but I can remember his. Right. His, yeah, his, yeah. His, <laughs> but, you know, Kodos, you know, seemed to have been operating on some sort of weird eugenics program mm-hmm. as well. And it, it, it's not spelled out too much that his agenda seemed to, he took advantage of the famine and the disaster on that planet to implement his you know pet eugenic theories we will give food to the people who are both worthwhile and productive and therefore improve the colony to some degree yeah that that's sort of the whole sort of again once again you can see this is very much you know that episode is about tracking down nazi war criminals mm-hmm. which was a thing back then you know anton caridian is living in argentina no dude. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> But even when we hear a little bit, and it's not really spelled out what happened on his planet too much, we hear snippets of speeches. There's talk about them deciding on some sort of basis of eugenics or superiority as to who was going to get the food and who was going to be exterminated. So even though there wasn't any genetic engineering or force breeding in here, you see Kodos comes out of this whole sort of, well, we're going to improve the colony by winnowing out the weak and inferior and giving all our resources to, you know. Yeah. You know. So that 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 was also clearly in the mindset, and you can make a link, even though there was no direct connection to the eugenics wars. Kodos had his own weird sort of, I'm going to, you know, eugenics program going on during the famous, you know, massacre, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a eugenic storyline in that sense. And Kirk, of course, was there, you know. So uh, interesting, you know. And interestingly, kind of... What reminded me of this is one of the Discovery novels has actually addressed that. One of the Discovery novels is all about what went down on, you know, with Kodos on his planet. So, you know, again, so I was thinking, oh, Discovery hasn't touched this too much. Well, you you did have the crazy eugenicist. You have Kodos and you have the thing on, I'm blanking on the name of that planet, where he, there was the famine and he killed off 50% of the population. Discovery, yeah, yeah. at least in the in, in the literary version, has actually dealt with has, that. Has touched on that. That is a good point. But we'll have to wait and see what, you know, who knows what the next time this topic comes up on screen. It'll be really interesting to see um, how it plays out. But before we go, Greg, um, tell us a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been working on um, recently, because I think you've you've been you've had some Star Trek books coming out uh, in the fairly recent past, haven't you? And, and are you working on any more in the future? 
I, I have nothing definitely I can announce at the moment. I mm-hmm. would be absolutely stunned if I don't write more Star Trek in the future. Sure. But in fact, my most recent book is called The Antares Maelstrom. Hey, that's another con reference. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that actually came out in trade paperback just a few months ago. It, it, is, it is surely in your local bookstore as we speak. Mm-hmm. That's not terribly eugenics oriented. But yeah, um, I've, at this point, I've written 16 Star Trek novels. Wow. I, I, I expect I will write more because I've, mm-hmm. I've been writing Star Trek novels for a quarter of a century now. I, I did the math. Yeah. And the most recent one is the Antares Maelstrom. That is a classic five-year mission novel set during the time of the original series. And it has Kirk and his crew dealing with, with what is basically an interstellar, old-fashioned gold rush situation. Right. Where, you know, again, I was looking at real history, the Alaskan gold rush, the California gold rush, mm-hmm. where... A rare mineral, Pergium, which you may remember from The Devil in the Dark, mm-hmm. is found on some remote planet, and it sets out a huge, chaotic gold rush with aliens from all over the quadrant rushing to get and, you know, stake their claim and get rich, and chaos erupts, and basically the Enterprise is sent in to try to fight, somehow impose order on this incredibly chaotic situation. Sounds like a good one. Definitely one uh, to check out. Well, thank you, Greg, for joining me. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and great to talk to you um, about this interesting topic. Um, But talking about eugenics and and Khan and the race of supermen and the eugenics wars is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! Although I, I love the season finale of season one in, uh, in Voyager. What, learning curve. Learning curve. Learning curve. I like. I, I love that episode no, personally. It's not a season yeah, finale. I love the episode. No, it's a standalone episode, but I love it. I'd want to keep that as a standalone episode. It no, wants the cruise on. No. That's <laughs> no. insane. I love that episode. What are you talking about? You can okay. You can choose two things from that episode that you can keep. <laughs> Go for it. Earl Grey. The powers at Paramount at the time, they wanted it to be left more ambiguous, so the audience were... But it's not all that ambiguous, I think. Right, well, you were questioning it. Because there would have to... But but there would have to be, like... (laughs) There would have to coincidentally be something that happened to cause it to discharge and transport without Data doing that, and that seems unlikely. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. You should buy yourself another one and do that. Like the little circle that goes around the top of the saucer section. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that will look. That will. And, and maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit on the nacelles as well. You know, just just accents. Or you could just get like a sticker of Jeffrey Chrome's as Shran, and then stick it on the underside of it. Maybe. Oh, just a big Shran face on the on the underside of the ship. I like or that. Or kind of stylized like how the um, like Second World War bombers would have the like the pet pinup girl painted on the side. Shran the pinup girl. <laughs> the Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. I got to say about your your thing about Vasquez rocks. I mean, I I'm disappointed that it's actually supposed to be Vasquez rocks. Oh, yeah, because that means that we're not going to see Lazarus. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I know you love the alternative factor, but love uh, the alternative probably factor. not a probably not a connection with Picard. They all can I, still I, exist. I was, I was holding out hope, you know. I was holding out <laughs> hope. So you never know. 
There's lots of rocks. He could be on the other side. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.